Naivete and a hunger for respect drives a brash, stocky runner from Boise, Idaho with a Hollywood smile to seven NCAA titles in the 800 and 1500 meters and back-to-back Olympic Games in Beijing and London. On the podcast today, we are joined by Nick Simmons, Olympian, social media supernova, and entrepreneur. Nick walks us through some of his racing memories, his thoughts on the suppression of athlete rights and the need to pay amateur athletes, and his journey with RunGum a company that he started with his coach, Sam LaPrey, and how they've navigated the business through treacherous waters of COVID. So if you're ready for the show, crank it up and let's go. Welcome to the Athlinks Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Bousseau, coming to you from a secret training facility deep beneath the Rocky Mountains. It is November 11th, 2020, and this is episode six. How's it going, Nick? Hey, how you doing? I am doing quite, quite well. We have Nick Simmons, two-time Olympian, founder of Run Gum, a slow-running turtle, self-prescribed uh, washout, or, or uh, uh, has-been, rather, uh, runner on the podcast today. So, Nick, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for the intro. I say I'm, I'm a very proud has-been runner. Perfect. I, I'm 36 now. I, I, I ran professionally for 12 years in a previous lifetime, but we'll get into that. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So you are in, uh, you're up in Oregon, mm-hmm. uh, Springfield, Oregon. Uh, it's a sister city to Eugene, which is Tracktown, USA. Okay. I got to tell you, like with your personality, like your smile, your you are like okay. a, the quintessential Southern California guy. So it surprised Everyone me. says that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm from Boise, Idaho originally, but, yeah. um, I don't know. I just, uh, I fit in, in SoCal. I spent a lot of time down there. Well, but, it's the uh, competition. Oregon's my home and it will probably always be my home. Very good. It's the, I was going to say it's the competition I saw on your Wikipedia. You are the Brad Pitt of running. So uh, yeah. there can only be one Brad Pitt in LA. So you gotta, I gotta, I gotta stay in Springfield. That's it. <laughs> You'll be the Brad Pitt of Oregon. There we go. <laughs> cool. So, um, so you are again two-time Olympian. I mean, the accomplishments are are many, 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 and, and varied. You are you remind me of a guy, um, an ultra runner, uh, Zach Miller, in that you don't look like your prototypical eight hundred meter gazelle, six foot three, sort of you know, fourteen yard David Radisha, yeah. Masai Warrior type. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm. I'm a bulldog. I'm, I'm five foot 10. Uh, I currently weigh 185 pounds, but I raced at 165 okay. and they used to call me the bison. They said, <laughs> you know, if David Radisha's a gazelle gracefully gliding along, then Simmons is the bison running, you know, in conk. What do they say? Like unimaginably fast behind him. It doesn't make sense that a big guy like that's built like me can run as fast as I did. I guess <laughs> what they were saying. Did you start in other sports? Did what, like, was your size and strength? Yeah. I mean, I grew up playing soccer and basketball and ice hockey, and I dreamed of going pro one day in, in my two favorite sports, which was soccer and ice hockey, but I was the run of the litter. I was the smallest kid in my high school, and You're uh, kidding. I'm not joking. I was five feet tall, um, 90 pounds um, when I started high school, and as much as I wanted to go and, and participate on varsity hockey, varsity soccer, the coaches took one look at me, and they said – you will get murdered out there. <laughs> go run cross country. And when you go through puberty, we'll, we'll give you some playing time. Uh, so I did. I went out and I you know, ran cross country and then I ran track. And I, I, I did end up playing hockey. I played four seasons of ice hockey in between my cross country and my track seasons. Okay. Um, but I recognized from a pretty early age that, that there was some promise in yeah. my ability to run fast around a track. 
Well, and thankfully you grew up in an era where you were allowed to do multiple sports and things. It seems like there's so much specialization today. There is. And I'll say this, you know, in in a really technical event, like gymnastics, like gymnasts peak at like 14, right? Like you have to start early. You have to be hyper-focused. Running is a not, not a particularly uh, demanding sport from like a, uh, you know, hand-eye coordination or muscle memory standpoint. It's a lot about fitness, but I was building that fitness as a kid running around chasing a soccer ball. Mm. So, you know, I was able to, and I'll, you'll see this a lot of times with pro track and field runs. They, they may have started later. Alan Webb was a soccer player. A lot of us started out in soccer or swimming or something and then found track and field maybe in high school. And that's when we really started kind of digging in and, and investing ourselves in that sport. And did, so did you continue when in high school, were you running cross country and, and track and field both? I did four years of cross in high school, three years of track. And then in college, I did four years of each. Okay. And did that, did that screw you up at all? I mean, going from the, to the two distances? No, I actually think, I think you need to have a, a kind of a focus, right? Like I always knew I was, a, I was a mid distance runner who ran cross country to stay in shape rather than a cross country runner that ran track, you know, because there, there was nothing to do in the spring for cross country runners. I think that as a mid distance runner who appreciated how much that hard work I put in the fall would benefit me in the spring. I knew I needed to put the base work in and it was way more fun to do it with my cross country team than to just be out there logging those miles by myself. Yeah. Um, and did you, um, did you ever want to go back to those other sports? Like, I mean, I know cross country is the same uh, time as football, but did you, yeah. like, did you ever have an, an inch to go into hockey or soccer or any of those other well, the nice thing about hockey growing up in Idaho was that it was sandwiched between the cross country and the track season. So oh, okay. I did actually play hockey as my winter sport. I'd, I'd train all fall for cross country and then for about two or three months play ice hockey and then start my, my prep for uh, outdoor track. Um, I loved soccer and, you know, would have played soccer all the way, you know, maybe through college, except that my so- well, it must have been my freshman year of, of uh, high school. I tried to do cross country and uh, club soccer in the same season. And I ended up getting my first stress fracture. Mm. And my parents looked at me and they were so supportive of everything I did. But they said, we love you and you have to pick one sport per season or you're going to continue getting injured. Mm. And as much as I love soccer, I just saw more potential in, in running, I guess. Yeah. And I liked that my hard work would pay me dividends in cross country. Everyone got the same amount of playing time. Everyone got mm. the same opportunities. Uh and even though I, I would say I like soccer better, I, I, I certainly saw the future for me in running. Yeah, and, and your dad was a surgeon? He was a surgeon, a vascular surgeon in Boise, okay. Idaho, yeah. Just retired recently. Okay, got it. So was he was he kind of a, a, a part of that? Um, I mean, obviously, you, you would respect his opinion. Most of the times, it's tough for uh, especially a, a young young boy to uh, take the advice of their fathers. Uh, but in this <laughs> uh, case, it sounded like he did. Yeah, my dad and I had a great relation, have a great relationship, always have. And, you know, in a lot of ways, my parents were the the exact opposite of what you would expect an Olympian's parents to be like. Mm. They were like, you know, if I came home and I was tired and I was like, I just really don't feel like running, getting my run in today. They'd be like, don't bother, you know, here, <laughs> have a donut, just kick your feet up, watch some TV. And I'm like, you don't understand. I have to get my miles in. So like, they were never pushing me. They were always encouraging me to find, you know, what I would say is a, a really healthy lifestyle balance. Um, and it was more driven from within. And maybe some of my own insecurities that I had at a young age, I just desperately wanted to be good at something. Mm. I wanted to be so good at something that people looked at me with respect and 
were proud of what I accomplished. And just, I wanted to prove to everyone how hard I could work and how great I could be at something. I didn't know what that something was going to be, but it, it, as I got older and had more success in track and field and cross country, I recognized that that was probably my best chance at being really great at something. That's interesting. So it wasn't, it wasn't just the girl, it was all the girls and all the guys and just, you just, it was, it was probably born out of the fact that I was the runt of the litter, right? I was, like I said, this, I was literally the smallest person in my high mm. school, male or female <laughs> when I started out at the age of 14. Wow. And you know, you don't get a lot of respect when you're the run of the litter. And I just knew that if I could find my thing and i think everyone is good at something i really believe that but you have to try a dozen or in some cases a hundred things until you find out what your natural calling is sure and i never thought it would be distance running but you know i just saw again how how my hard work would allow me to have some success and then the adulation and success that came with that made me want to train harder so i had even more success and that's one of the beautiful things about running is is it is kind of this you know self-feeding cycle where you just see yourself having success so you train harder so you have more success so you train harder and you do that for 20 years and you end up a two-time olympian i guess there you go yeah it's yeah. the you know very typical story <laughs> yeah right yeah so when did you start to realize that i mean you're the run to the litter you're the kid who probably you know every time you lined up for sports or whatever maybe last person picked or you know certainly your freshman year things like that when did you start to realize like i'm i'm pretty damn good at this like not just at a, I'm a fast kid on, on, you know, in my school, but when did you start realizing that you really did have a talent for this? Um, that's a great question. I think when I decided to go out for track instead of for club soccer, uh, my sophomore year, I obviously was making a conscious decision to follow that path, mm -hmm. but in the state of Idaho, and this was before all of the wonderful, uh, you know, running related websites that we have today, uh, where I didn't know where I stacked up, right? Mm -hmm. I knew I was good for Idaho. Um, cause I was winning state titles in Idaho and everything from four by four up to five K cross country. So I knew I was good for Idaho and I liked that, but I, you know, if I had been growing up in 2020 and looking at what kids were doing in Texas and California and Florida, you know, I would have realized that I, you know, was mm. way down the list, but I think I recognized, and, and maybe it was a, a, the naivety of not knowing where I stacked up that I was good, right. Mm. I was winning races and, yeah. And that I had the opportunity probably to go and run in college and then find out exactly where I stacked up against the best in the nation. So uh, if I was to pig, to answer your question, if I knew when I knew I was really good at this was my senior year, I had just graduated. And I went to the U.S. championships, not D3 championships, not D1, but the U.S. championships for track and field where the best in America raced each other. And I finished second there. I think I was one of the very last wow. people to qualify for the meet. Um, like 31 out of 32 that got invited and I finished second there. That's when I, I kind of was like, Don, I'm really good at this. And so good that I may actually be able to make wow. this my job. I turned pro a few weeks later hmm. and then, you know, decided to put my entire life on hold for two years to try to train for the 2008 Olympic team. Wow. That's insane. So that's interesting. Sort of a, like a, um, an ignorance is bliss mentality got you 100%, through. Yeah. Interesting. I, I call it the big fish in the little pond syndrome. Mm -hmm. I went from being the big fish in the little pond of Idaho to being the big fish in the little pond of D3 running to being, you know, the big fish in a, a pretty good sized pond, which is the United States to then, you know, the world, but it was a hundred percent ignorance. I just didn't know I wasn't supposed to lose races. You know, mm. I, I was, I, I had this coach in college, Kelly Sullivan, and he said, Nick, you are going to develop a taste for winning here. You're going to learn to win from a slow pace 
from a fast pace, getting tripped, no matter what happens in a race, you will learn how to win. And I did. I, I literally did not lose an 800-meter race from my sophomore year of high school until that that time after graduation of college. For seven straight years, I didn't lose an 800. Wow. And, and then when I got to that race, I was so pissed off that I lost. Even though I finished number two in the United States, I'm like, oh, I lost for wow. the first time. You know, wow. It was really just a, a totally ignorant kid that didn't know he wasn't supposed to be doing that. That's great. Did you lose to somebody that you had raced before? Nope. It was Cadivas Robinson and who he and I ended having this wonderful four or five year rivalry. Um, but he was ranked number one in the United States. And I remember in the semifinals, he won his semi and I won my semi. And in the mix zone, I said, watch out, Katie, I'm coming for you in the finals. <laughs> and he laughed in my face. He goes, yeah, you do that kid. You do Whoa. that. All right. <laughs> and I love Katie because he, he was the kind of person that entertained my trash talking and Afterwards, I ran up and said, I'm a huge fan. Can I have an autograph? And he oh. laughed and gave me a picture and autograph. So, That's um, you know, it was uh, it was this, again, just an ignorant kid that had no idea what he was or wasn't supposed to be doing in a situation like that. Yeah. Did Were you a pretty brash kid, like in a good way, but you got this big, huge smile and yeah, you, know, you think, got a great personality? I think that um, it was brashness covering up insecurity early mm. on. You know, again, I still was that at heart, that 14-year-old run to the litter kid. And, uh, it was probably, you know, came off as, as probably cocky. And I, I, you see it a lot, you know, with young men, I think as they're trying to find their way in the world. And then towards my late twenties, I think it really kind of settled into just more of a, a real confidence in my ability. If I put my head down, if I do the work, if I believe in myself, there is almost nothing I can't accomplish, mm. you know, and I've, I've relied on that, that idea you know, maybe I learned that first as, as a scout, I became an Eagle scout at the age of 17. And then it was running that taught me that. And then I've utilized that, that mentality of, of going all in on something to get my pilot's license, which was a really intimidating endeavor I took or launching my own business. I, and I tell, tell young men and young women this all the time. It is truly a mind over matter thing. If, if you devote all of your time and energy into one thing, it is almost impossible not to be great at that one thing. It's just that we're distracted so often and, mm. and for obvious reasons, right? School pulls us away or family pulls us away or, you know, so many things try to monopolize our time. But if you look at your professional athletes or the people out there that really are able to put 24-7 focus into one thing, it, it's no surprise that those people get to be really, really great at something because, you're devoting so much time and energy into that one thing. It's, it's more a question of, can you yeah. minimize all those distractions and, and, and really isolate what you're, what you're doing? Well, and to your earlier point, I wonder how much of it too is where you get to enjoy the journey more than the destination. If you don't realize a kid in Boise is, you know, whatever, maybe you were 200th in the country, but you sort of in your mind, you thought you were number one, two, three, <laughs> yeah. right? And yeah. so you didn't fixate on, oh, I'm not as good as I want to be. You fixated on, I'm already pretty good. I'm enjoying the heck out of this thing. And I'm yeah. going to keep putting in that same amount of effort. I think that's a great analysis. I never once thought I'm not as good as I want to be when I was younger. Certainly as, as I became a pro, I felt that way. But in my, in my high school and college days, I just thought, gosh, I'm so good at this. This is fun. <laughs> I like being good at something. Yeah. And I never once compared myself with, uh, and I, it's, again, it's almost impossible to do in today's digital world, but I never once compared myself with what other kids in other states were doing, or even in college, what my D1 counterparts were doing. It just didn't matter to me because it was, <clears throat> it was a different, different world that I wasn't participating in. Yeah. 
Well, and it's so, you know, I mean, the reality is, is when you're 13, 14, 15, 17, 18, 19 years old, the reality is you're nowhere near your ceiling anyway. And so no. the fact that you loved it, you had this passion for it. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm blown away. You walk in off of a high school campus, you walk into a university and you win NCAA championship in the 800 and the 1500 as a true freshman. That is, I mean, that is remarkable. You, you see it every once in a while in football where like one, two, three kids in the country can can sort of, you know, step onto the field and, and be at that level. But your ability to do that, did you, like, what were your expectations going into, into college? Were you sort of in your mind going, oh, I've got this? Or were you like, okay, you know, I'm just going to take me a couple of years to mature. I'm going to be going up against yeah. men, basically. It'll I'm sure it'll sound arrogant to a lot of your <laughs> listeners, but you got to understand where I was coming from as, as you know, this, this brash Idaho yeah. kid with a lot of insecurities. I, I just didn't care who it was. You know, you know, you know how there's a lot of athletes that will study who is on the start line before they go race and, sure. Oh, this name ran this time there. And Oh, this person has, <clears throat> I never once did that. I was like, I don't care who's on the starting line. I'm just going to race bodies yeah. and I'm going to win the race. Like that's how I approached every single race. I and again, it's just naivety. It was just yeah. ignorance is bliss, and I just showed up and raced. And I didn't care about time. I just wanted to be the first person across the line. So no, when I went to college, I just said, "Line me up, and let's see what happens." Yeah, uh, you know, uh, you call it naivete, but it, it's it's almost just like a you just had a really healthy outlook on your own on your own life. Frankly, I mean, it, it because the reality is like you you probably could have. Um, you could have known who was on yeah. that start line, right? But you just chose, like, no, I'm going to go and I'm going to run my race. It doesn't matter what the other guy's doing. And and if I win, I win. If I lose, I lose. But it's all going to be based on what I'm doing, not what the other guy's doing, or I'm afraid of what the other guy's doing. Yeah, and I think I, I did carry that mentality with me as a pro. I, as a pro, you're racing the same people every weekend. So, like, I know who's out there. I know what they're doing. But – I would never get caught up with David's race plan, David Radish's race plan, or Marcin Lewandowski. These guys, they always ran their own race, and I, I ran my own race. And occasionally I would key off of somebody if I knew it was going to be a fast race. For example, if, if uh, Dwayne Solomon was in the race, I knew how the race was going to unfold, and I would key off of him slightly. But I was still going to run my own race. And you know, I think so often young athletes get so caught up with their mm. competitors of, of, oh, they ran this time at this course and, oh, I, I've got to glue myself to this athlete or stick with this athlete or, you know, just run your own race. Yeah. I, um, I have a, a story that I tell every once in a while that is, I, I don't mind failing. I don't mind losing. Um, my biggest failure, my biggest loss athletically was when I didn't listen to myself and I listened to my coach mm. and he, he basically in the championship, uh, event, I did the opposite of what I normally do. Yeah. And to this day, I'm 49 years old. That was my <laughs> senior year in high school. And it's a, yeah. it is the single biggest like uh, uh, athletic regret of my life. Not that I lost, I could handle losing. It was that I knew, I knew that I could win on my terms and I just, for whatever reason, yeah. in the most important situation, chose to listen to other people. I think it's important to have a great athlete coach relationship, but at the end of the day, especially in running, when you step your, when you step foot on that line, it's you. Okay. Yeah. It's not your coach. It's not your teammates. It's not your family. 
when you are out there in that arena, it is you and you alone and you are the expert of your body, right? You know yourself better than anyone else does. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I empathize with you because I, you know, I've, I've gotten distracted and, and, you know, tried different things, but yeah, you, at the end of the day, you only, you know, your body and, and what it's capable of on that day. We'll, we'll, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but have you used that same philosophy in business, trusting your own self and gut where other people, you know, I mean, you start yeah. a, you start a, a gum company, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. you know, out of Oregon versus, you know, the CPG, you know, Chicago's of the world, but you start a, yeah. a gum company that you had to have been listening to your own voice there and, and probably blocking out a lot of naysayers. I think that two things work in my favor. Um, one, I'm not afraid of failure. And a lot of athletes have that mentality. It's actually why a lot of athletes make such great entrepreneurs is that we're eternally optimistic and we're not afraid of failure. So I thought, you know, okay, we launched this business and it fails. Okay, I'll yeah. start another one. Like I, I'm never, I'm never worried about what people are going to think if I fail because I failed publicly so many times, <laughs> you know, on the track. Yeah. Um, and then also just going back to the, the self confidence that if I put all of my time and energy in something it's almost impossible to fail. So if, if Rungum's going to fail, it, it's more likely a symptom of me not putting enough time and energy into it, right? It's not necessarily the product or the people or the customer. It really will probably come down to whether I allocated enough time and energy to it. And I, I really believe that about everything that I do. If, if I went to get my pilot's license, I knew that the, 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 whether I got it or didn't had nothing to do with anybody else other than me and willing, whether or not I was willing to put in the work. Yeah. So if you're an entrepreneur out there, you know, you have to believe that your your ability to work hard is your ability to be successful. Those have to be linked together. Hundred percent. I I used to do a mentorship program in Phoenix on entrepreneurship for high school kids, and my first question was, you know, who wants to be an entrepreneur? Everybody would raise their hands, um, and then we okay, why? And then mm -hmm. I would say half of the room would say would always mention. I want to be my own boss. I want the freedom. I don't want to have to answer to anybody, you know, and yep. all. And I'm like, you are, you need to change that mindset because <laughs> as an entrepreneur, you are going to like, you have customers, you have, you know, all of these different things. And as far as freedom goes, you have less freedom in a lot of ways because you, you know, you have yeah. to it's, pull yourself up. It's just, uh, it's, it's trading one thing for another, right? Like I know a lot of employees that love being employees for the security. Mm -hmm. Well, as an entrepreneur, you don't have security, right? Right. But you don't really answer to anybody at most days. Uh, some days I joke that I answer to the biggest jerk in the world myself, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. <laughs> and I feel, I feel guilty some days. Like if I, if I duck out of work and go fishing, I'm like, oh man, I'm like, really shouldn't be doing this. But, you know, I, I think that if you are the kind of entrepreneur that feels that, then and that's probably the right job for you. You know, it's, it probably is. Yeah. We'll get into the culture of run gum in a little bit, but that's uh that's definitely one of the reasons to go and, and be an entrepreneur is that you can set culture and, and the, the type of business that you want to create, the type of culture and the, you know, the type of people you want to hang out with you, you're in full control of that. And that's, that is a gift. That is an absolute gift. That is. So going back, um, back into your, your early days, you mentioned you were an Eagle scout. I'm always, um, uh, curious on that side. So you have this self-belief, this um, kind of unflappable confidence that came from running. Some of that had to have been also from, um, it's not easy to be an Eagle Scout. It's not a, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of hard work that goes into that. Um, 
That's going to be four years. Okay. And so it's a lifetime when, when you're a teenager, right? hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. And so you had had a lot of accomplishments. Do you, did, obviously there was probably some interplay there. Did one feed the other? Were they sort of 50, 50? I, for better, or for worse, I am persistent to a fault. Mm. And what I mean by that is I will set a goal for myself. And even when that goal has become obsolete or it may be detracting from my happiness or detracting from where I want to go in life, I will continue to bust my ass to get that goal. So a great example is, is getting this Eagle Scout, right? I started when I was 13 or 14 in Scouts, and it was really fun at that age. We got to play with knives and fires, and I loved getting merit badges. And I had a ton of fun scouting in my early teen years. Then you get to be about 16 or 17, and sports and girls are way more important than merit <laughs> badges and, and the other things that go with scouting. But I had set a goal for myself to get my eagle. Mm. Now, one nice thing about scouting is that there's a timeline on this. You have to get your eagle before your 18th birthday. So even though I flew through the ranks in my 13, 14, 15 years of age, you know, it kind of slowed down at 16 and 17 because all of my time was going into sports and school and everything else I had on my plate. And so I kind of started seeing this clock ticking down to my 18th birthday and I knew that if I didn't get my eagle in the, you know, in the next 12 to 18 months, it was never, ever going to happen to me. And so despite the fact that I wanted to invest all my time and energy into these other things that I was passionate about, I busted my butt to get my eagle. And it was frustrating. It was challenging. Pissed me off at times. But to this day, I look back and I'm just mm. so incredibly proud of my younger self for mm. the perseverance that I showed to get that ball into the end zone. That's and awesome. I took that mentality with me to college. I hated college. Mm. And I not the first time I've said it, I didn't like my school. I didn't particularly like my classes. I didn't even like the head coach of the cross of the of the track team at the time. I I was I was very unhappy at, at the at the university that I was at. But I set a goal for myself mm. to graduate with a degree in biochemistry. Yeah. So even though I probably should have transferred or even though I maybe should have dropped out and gone pro early or however you want to look back on it, I was going to get that damn degree. And it, it, like I said, sometimes to a fault even at the expense of my happiness or success in other areas, when I've set a goal for myself, I'm, I'm going to get to it, to yeah. that, to that finish so line. Balance of long-term versus short-term happiness. Yeah, I think that's right. How do you approach goal setting? Are you do you write things down? Are you a like a post-it yeah. notes guy? Or well, it's so funny you mentioned that. I'm in my office right now, so your listeners can't see it. But this board right oh, here, nice. oh, this, is my, this is my goal board, right? 2020 <laughs> goals. And it, it, I'll try to describe it. I've got goals for family, fitness, run gum, YouTube, hobbies, and my other business, Nick Simmons LLC. And yes, they're they're written on post-it notes, and they're as a guy who's somewhat neurotic about setting and achieving goals. You know, I've studied what makes people successful at setting and achieving goals. And I want to be the kind of guy that achieves all his goals and, and does it without, you know, banging my head against the wall too hard. So some of the things that I've studied from really successful people that are great at setting and achieving goals is it has to be a quantifiable goal, right? It has to be realistic and it has to have a black or white success metric. So I want to be faster that is not a goal. That is a wish. Mm. I want to complete my first marathon before the end of 2021 is a concrete goal that's realistic for most people, right? So yep. I'm really good about setting concrete 
goals with black and white uh, metrics for success. And then if you write it down, literally just the act of writing it down makes you 43% more likely to achieve it. So I write it down on a post-it note. I tell my friends and family that these goals, and actually everybody on Instagram, because I talk about this all the time (laughs) on Instagram, that these goals are important to me. Hold me accountable. Make sure that I stay true to myself and the goals that I've set for myself. And I've hit every single goal that I set for myself this year, which is actually kind of demotivating. It's kind of demotivating at this point. Well, there's one that's out of my control, and and we'll talk about that later. But it's a little bit demotivating because there's still two months to go, and I'm like, well, what what do I do now? (laughs) Uh, You can can just adjust, I guess, the the, um, the, the the top end of the goal. Well, now I'm starting to set my goals for 2021. And like, what can I do now in the next eight weeks that put me on a really good foundation for achieving those goals? Very good. Wow. That's, that's great. I'm glad I asked that question. So you mentioned also your, your pilot's license. Um, There's still something in the Eagle Scout thing. Like did you, was that something your parents pushed you toward? Is that something you, like, did you have a buddy? How did you end up there? Um, and again, just the, I'm always curious on the chicken and eggs of these types of things. Yeah. Like, was it you that became a good Eagle Scout or was it you that was just going to be a good Eagle Scout? I think that's a really good question. My dad was an Eagle Scout. Okay. And he, he didn't like take me to my first scouting meeting. I was like, he would never push me into it. I just one day woke up and I was like, hey, let's go see the local scout troop. Like, I want to, know what that's all about. Um, and then I think when I was there early, you know, early on, um, when you're like a tenderfoot, mm. first class, someone said, did you know that only that did you know that for every 50 scouts that start scouting, only two will get there? No one. So for every 100 scouts that start, two will get their eagle. Mm. It's one in 50. Okay. And I just thought, I want to be that guy. Yeah. I want to be the one in 50. It's a little yeah, it just takes one little thing, like a little nugget, a little challenge like that. Yeah. And I, as, again, as this insecure 13 or 14-year-old who wanted to separate himself from other people as the kind of person that, that was success, successful in everything that I did, that was the first concrete metric. Probably, probably my, my, my very first really big audacious goal was get your eagle before you turn 18. Mm. It's a concrete goal with a clearly defined metric of success or failure. And so I think that was probably the first time that I really set myself a smart goal. That's awesome. So we won't talk too much because you hated it. About yeah. collegiate. Oh, we can talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's it still just, there's so much other cool and interesting yeah. stuff to talk about. So let's um let's 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 leapfrog um seven at well, I will ask you one question. So you had seven um NCAA championships. There's one missing there, right? So it's yeah. your sophomore year? Sophomore year. So I won the 800 and the 15 my freshman year, mm-hmm. and I was planning on coming back and defending those titles, but I actually had uh, double knee surgery at Christmas time wow. my sophomore year. So I had plica, and maybe a lot of your endurance athletes know about plica in the knees, and so I had to have those removed mm. arthroscopically, but I didn't start running until April 1st of that year, and I trained for about six weeks and went back to the nationals, and I knew... I, I, I thought maybe I have enough strength built up in these six weeks to defend my 800 meter title, but I certainly don't have enough for the 15 and certainly not enough for both. Mm-hmm. So I just ran the eight, was able to defend my title in the eight, but didn't win the 15 my sophomore year. Got it. Then came back junior and senior year and won them uh, both again. Won them both again. Okay. Yeah. And then, so you graduate college. Now it's off to the, to the pro ranks. Um, <clears throat> 
the Olympics. You were is it London? I I always get my all my Olympics are scrambled in my brain. Uh, Beijing 08 and London 12. That's it. Okay. Yeah. We just talked to Anthony Famiglietti yesterday. Yeah. Um, he was there for, for Beijing. Um, mm-hmm. the, I'm going to go a little off the beaten path here. So the, we, we all hear about the Olympic village and, and all of that stuff. Give us a sense for just kind of like, you know, you're a young kid, you've got some accomplishments behind you. Biggest stage in the world, obviously Olympics for track and field. The Olympic Village, what's that like? The biggest distraction in the world. It's not fun. I mean, it's fun for a day or two, but yeah. when when you realize that you've spent the last four, six, ten years of your life training for a competition, you don't want to be in the Olympic Village. Mm. It's it's chaos, right? Like it's hard. First of all, the cafeteria is hit or miss, mm. um, depending on what you like to eat. But maybe the and I eat everything, so that's mm. not a problem for me. The biggest one for me is that. <laughs> If you're in the Olympic Village, the games take course over three weeks, right? And track and field is at the end of those three weeks. And the men's 800 is at the end of the end of those weeks. So, you know, in Beijing, for example, I was in that village for almost a month, I feel like. It was a long time that I was there. And the swimmers, right? The swimmers get done early and they are ready to blow off some steam. Sure. So you got people partying all hours of the day, screaming, hooting and hollering, Meanwhile, you're laying in your bed thinking tomorrow I'm going to race, you know, for Team USA at the biggest event in the world. Yeah. So in Beijing, I felt like I was a little in over my head. I was fish out of water. I wasn't comfortable and I didn't race very well. Fast forward four years to London. My team, Oregon Track Club Elite, had apartments for us outside the village. I didn't stay in the village, you know, but a couple nights I was really more business minded, I would say, in 2012. Less, you know in a candy shop yeah it seems like you know the um somebody was talking about mike tyson years ago and like you don't if you want to throw a, a fight you don't get to the fighter you get to the trainers right right convincing a fighter to take a dive but it seems like that olympic village there's so much to your point of like you just trained your ass off for your entire life and that just seems like not, not where you want to be yeah, yeah. not the place well, to I'll be say this. i'll say this if let's say like I could go back in time and mm-hmm. my, my event was on the first day. If I could spend three weeks anywhere in the world, I would spend those three weeks in an Olympic village, <laughs> right? Maybe not Beijing because the food wasn't as good, but like London Olympic village. Right. Oh my gosh. Just so much fun. The most yeah. incredible people, you know, you wake up and you're walking to breakfast and, and uh, LeBron James is right there. And you're like, Hey LeBron, sure. you know, like it's just incredible. It's a, it's an otherworldly place. But if you need to perform at your best and, and you know, you do the games, then it's the last place you want to be. Mm, interesting. Interesting. So, um, London Olympics happens. You, you get through that. You, you were, uh, walk me through the London Olympics there. You were, uh, you won your first heat. I think I won my first, uh, first round I won. And I think I was first or no, I was third in the semis. Um, and I got through to the finals as a time qualifier. Mm-hmm. And then in the finals where David Rudisha ran the world record, I just went for a ride and somehow miraculously ran 142.9 for fifth place. That is insane. Wow. It's crazy. It's, I, I made a video about this the other day on my second YouTube channel, Nick Simmons too, where I talk a lot about, you know, what it was like to be a pro athlete. And I did a race recap of that video or a race recap of that moment. And I just went back and I said, it's, it's the most bittersweet moment of my entire career because on the one hand, I ran almost a full second personal best in the 800 
in that race, the fastest time I ever ran over 20 years of running competitively, but it was only good enough for fifth place. Right. You know, that time wins a medal and in almost every single game it wins the gold medal. But that particular day, everybody showed up and everybody competed and it was only good enough for fifth. So it's a little bittersweet for me. Yeah. Do you think you could have, I mean, it was your PR, so this is a stupid question probably, but could you have, I mean, you know, after, could you have gone out yeah. harder, softer, anything different? I don't think so. And I get, I get asked that question a lot, especially because I closed like a train, right? Mm -hmm. I went from basically eighth place to fifth place in the last hundred meters. But if you look back on my splits, it's just physiologically, most males will run their best 800s on a plus two second differential. And I ran exactly a plus two second differential. Mm -hmm. I went out faster than I've ever gone out. I split 600 faster than I've ever split 600. I closed harder than I've ever closed I just think I left it all on the track, and yeah. that's that's just what I had that day. Were you, and you can see the splits obviously on the track. Are you are you freaking out at some point? Are you like I'm going to blow up, or I feel <laughs> great? Or I'm kinda, honestly, I was kind of licking my chops. If yeah. you're a track aficionado out there, then you maybe you remember the 1972 Olympic Games where Dave Waddle was five meters off the pack, and the announcer said, "Oh, Dave Waddle looked like he's having a bad race. Maybe he's injured, and he goes on to win it." Right? Sometimes in these big events. People get carried away. They get a little too excited and they go out a little too fast. And, you know, my coach and I had talked about how this race was going to play out. We both knew David Rudisha was going to win, right? And he's just on another level. Yeah. But we thought every – it was a very young field. We thought everybody would get caught up with how fast David was running, would try to go out with him, and would die a horrible death the last 100 meters, right? They would mm. fade so hard. And if I ran my own race, I would pick them all off that last 100 meters. And it worked to a certain extent. I picked off three, yeah. but people just didn't fade as much as I thought they would. Yeah. And that's why it's considered the greatest 800 meter in the history of the 800 because every single athlete in that race bar one set a, set a new personal best, which is, is unheard crazy. of. In yeah, our race. it is. Yeah. We'll, we'll put a link to the YouTube um, of the video of that in the, in the show notes. That is amazing. Um, one thing that stands out in here, you were removed from the U.S. team in 2015 um, due to sponsorship rights conflict between Brooks and Nike. Um, what happened there? What was that all about? Yeah, this this gets into the real weeds of what it means to be a pro athlete in track and field, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> as a pro runner, if you step foot on the track at any given moment, you are competing under one of three different governing bodies and governing regulations, right? So if I'm competing in a diamond league, I'm governed by a rule, group of rules set by the IAAF, which I think are now called World Athletics, right? They're headquartered in Monaco, and they handle a lot of the for-profit races that take place in the world. Similarly, if I'm on U.S. soil and I'm competing at a U.S. championship, then I'm participating in something that's governed by USATF, okay. our local governing body. Yep. And then, of course, if I qualify for a team, I'm going to go and compete in the games, and that's governed by the IOC. And every single event has a different set of rules on what logos I can display, where they can be displayed, who I can mention in interviews – and it's just in every single scenario, it's designed to suppress the athletes' rights. Yeah. It's designed to make sure that all of the advertising revenue passes through the governing body's hands first so that they get paid and then there's some scraps are tossed on the table for the athletes. So most athletes, and certainly in America, the reason we have such a robust, diverse, successful track and field team is due to corporate sponsorships. Right, So if you see an Olympian out there, they're going to be repping their company. For seven years, eight years, it was Nike for me. The last four years of my career, it was Brooks. 
you know, but when you, when you make a team for team USA, you're, you're, you're signing away your right to what you wear right. and you're going to wear team USA's outfit. Now Nike pays about $20 million a year to USATF to ensure that team USA is outfitted head to toe in Nike gear, which is fine, right? On the track, I acknowledge that I will wear team USA gear where you don't have control over what I wear is in training and in just walking around. Right. Sure. So I'm at the time I was contractually obligated via my contract with Brooks to represent them to the best of my abilities in every single arena that wasn't a team USA sanctioned event. Okay. Now USATF in over promising to Nike perhaps, and, and they certainly did when they sent out this, 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 uh, demand that we not even pack our Brooks stuff to, to go to uh, the world championships. Um, They were overstepping their bounds and forcing us to, at the time they were trying to force me to violate my contract with Brooks. And I've made it really clear. Listen, I'm not going to sign your, your code of conduct. I am not going to wear Nike and except when I'm forced to at a team USA event, I need you to define what a team USA event is for me so that I can straddle that line between two different, uh, you know, apparel sponsors and they just wouldn't do it. You know, USATF loves um, ambiguity mm. because they love to just kind of bully people around. Mm. So rather than fall back on legal precedent or, you know, firm definitions, which is what I was asking for, they decided to go with ambiguity and bullying. And, you know, at, at that age, I was 20, gosh, I was 31. And I'd made a dozen world teams. Like, I was more about flipping the bird to USATF and making them look bad and exposing them for the crooks that they are than making one more world team. So what are you getting from whether it's Nike or team USA or USATF at this point, what are you getting back other than being able to compete in those events? And that's, and that's a great question, right? Almost nothing. Right. So in in a revenue share, let's say like NBA or NFL or MLB, there's, you know, I think it's close to a 50, 50 rev split model in team USA. They, there was independent auditors that recommend that, reckoned that about 7% of that 20 million ultimately made it back to the athletes. How absurd is that? You know, they're pimping us out to Nike and giving us nothing in return. And that, that was really what just pissed me off so Mm. bad at the end of my career. And it actually, I would say it, it accelerated my desire to be retired. I knew that I was, again, why I got into running in the first place. I loved that my hard work paid me dividends. And here I was working my butt off to make Max Siegel and the other executives at USATF rich. So I was so bothered by that. I just couldn't stand it. And so I spoke out on it as much as I could. But then I also hung my spikes up maybe a little early and, and started working as an entrepreneur where yeah. I knew my hard work would pay me the dividends. Well, I think all the talking in the world, you and I aren't going to solve this problem, but let's try. No, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's try. So how do you feel about, because I have my opinions on this and, and to be frank, it, it I kind of, I'm a Libra, so I don't know if it's got that to do with it, but <laughs> I, I literally like one day I'm like, eh, we should pay athletes. Nah, we shouldn't, you know, they're getting an education, but on the NCAA side of things, especially yeah. nowadays with, with social media, you know, you've got, you've got knuckleheads, frankly, making a million dollars a year off of their YouTube or Instagram yeah. accounts. And, and we are blocking, um, that right, frankly, of athletes yeah. to be able to go out and do the same thing, which is just, Hey, look, don't pay Horrible. me, but let me go do this on my own and let me self monetize these things. Where do you stand yeah. on pay for play for NCAA? Pay the players. And if you're not going to share the revenue, let them monetize their name and image, right? Mm-hmm. We're trying to teach these young men and women to 
take, take you know be powerful and knowledgeable about themselves and their careers. We're trying to teach them lifelong skills. What better skill than teaching them how to build their own business and manage their own brands? Yeah. Um, and and I will push back really really hard on anyone that says that they shouldn't be paid or compensated in some way because they get their school paid for. First of all, when I was looking at Division One schools, and I told the coaches that I want to be pre-med, that I want to go on to medical school, which was what I studied pre-med and biochemistry. They said, not at this school, you can't. That will interfere with your practices. Interesting. You, have, you have to major in something easier and less demanding. And I guarantee every football player and every basketball player gets told the exact same thing. So they're not getting the education that they want. A lot of times they're getting um, a fraction of the education that their peers are getting because they're their travel and their play and their practice time is so demanding. So no, they're not getting the exact education that they signed on for. And furthermore, most of them don't get full ride scholarships. Like the amount of athletes that get their school paid for is like one one thousandth of a percentage of the people participating in the NCAA. Mm. I didn't get any of my schooling paid for. Is that right? And most, not a single penny was paid for by the school or the NCAA. My parents footed the bill, thank God. But we're we're sitting here saying that we're compensating these athletes in some fair way when wow. that is just not the case. So you're a seven-time national champion who did not get a free education. Not, not, not even not free, not a single right. penny was paid for. Wow. Wow. Man, let that sink in for a second, everybody. That is crazy. It is. It's wrong. It's, it's, it is absolutely wrong and if anything comes of this horrible 2020 pandemic, I hope it bankrupts the NCAA. And I mean that. Wow. I really hope that the NCAA is bankrupted and that we change the model mm. to empower our student athletes, to compensate them fairly for their hard work, and to give them the skills that can make them successful on and off the playing field. So you were, you were a client of um, Hal Lifson, uh, kind of a famous PR guy. Um, yeah. for, for how, how long were you with him or are you still with him? No, I, we worked together for, I don't know, two or three years okay. around the 2012 games. Okay. Um, great guy loves to think outside the box. We had a lot of fun, but I recognize, and I think a lot of people, you know, in this day and age, traditional PR has changed considerably, mm -hmm. right? The days of, of utilizing a publicist. And I, I had a, I actually had a PR agency tell me this, that traditional PR is dead, mm. you know, due to our digital world where, I can create a YouTube video that's probably more powerful and sure. reaches more people than a PR agent could. You know, I, it, it, the game's changed significantly since 2012. Did how much did you learn from Hal and and the agency? Were you already good at self promotion? Were you thinking that way? Yeah, I I always wanted to be the most entertaining athlete out there, right? So I recognized that the athletes that were getting paid the best weren't always the fastest. They were the ones that had the best relationship with their fans and social media this was the early days of social media, was allowing us to build these online personas, right? So, you know, Lolo Jones, and I always use her as an example because she wasn't the most decorated, but she got paid better than almost anyone else because she was so good at sharing her story and her journey with her fans and had this huge following. And that's kind of the athlete that I wanted to be. I said, I want to be one of the fastest on the track, but even when I'm not running, you want to know what I'm doing because I'm, I'm, you know, trying to be this, this charismatic athlete on and off the track. So yeah, I understood self-promotion pretty well. I would say I understood earned media really well. And Hal is a guy that thinks outside the box and really understands earned media. So when you put my willingness to try different things with his willingness to think outside the box, we had, we had some pretty successful PR stunts. I, I must, I must say. That's awesome. 
so many, um, I would say, elite level um, runners, primarily, frankly, that I've known, they have a really hard time after uh, after the curtain comes down on the career, continuing doing um, running for, you know, fear of uh, like, you're not who you used to be kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I recognize wa- that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm watching these videos of you dressing up like a turtle racing people in Santa Monica or, you know, on the beach yeah. for a hundred bucks, um, through the run gum stuff. Um, how have you, I guess, kept that kind of playful, uh, like running should be fun, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah. a great, you know, it's, it's a game at the end of the day. How have you, have you ever like, was that transition when you did hang up the spikes over to just being a, an athlete guy, uh, you know, I prefer to call myself a has been just you so go. you know, Perfect. I take okay. ownership of that word. Okay. A washed better up has been, better a has been than a never was. There you right? go. <laughs> so I'm a washed up has been and I couldn't be happier Perfect. about it. Like I literally have a better relationship with running and fitness now than I ever did as a pro runner. And you know, when, with regards to just I never took myself that seriously, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was the guy that like two weeks after the Olympic games made a video of me doing a beer mile and put it up <laughs> on YouTube, just like goofing around. Like I just, I, again, I go back to the very first minute of this podcast. If you're not having fun, then what's the point? Yeah. So I have a great relationship with running and fitness now. And I get to do these silly things on YouTube, which is really more my personality. Like when you saw me standing on the start line of a U.S. championship and my head's down and I'm focused, like it was a small miracle that I was able to focus for a minute and 44 seconds. If you know me, (laughs) I'm easily distracted and I'm more likely to be the guy in a chicken costume racing people on the beach. So I'm, I'm more my authentic self today as a YouTube runner. Than I probably was as a professional. Yeah, that's hilarious. That's that is hilarious. And I'll add this. You know, I'll add this too. If pe- and I love when people online are like, it's just so sad to see Nick fall this low. Like, you know, he was a sub four minute miler, and now you know he's waddling around the track, barely able to break five minutes. Well, let me tell you this: I will make more money on that five minute mile waddling around the track today as a YouTuber than I did. The day I ran my 356 mile. Do you know how much I got paid to run a 356 mile? Tell me. Zero dollars. Uh, not a single penny. I ran 356 in the mile. I didn't make a single dime in that race. And yet I can go out and make a fun yeah. and you know, entertaining, inspirational YouTube video. And I'll make thousands of dollars on that video. It's crazy yeah. to me what our, what our world has become. In a good way, though, in some ways. If you use it for positivity, yeah. to motivate, educate, inspire it's just so, it's just incredible what kind of reach we have as, as, you know, digital creators. Well, and even speaking from someone, probably my favorite event in the world is the Olympics. I just have, since I was a little kid, I absolutely adore, look forward to, am glued to my television for three plus weeks um, during the Olympic games. And I will say you probably touch more people with that YouTube video, even then, than your, you know, sub four minute, um, yeah. I think so. You know, I think so. I think I get to craft the message that I want to put out in a YouTube video. I, I actually did some commentating for a while. You know, NBC had me doing some commentating mm-hmm. and I would say what was on my mind. Oh, and here's so-and-so fresh off a two-year drug ban. And they'd stop and they say, you can't say that. I'm like, well, why can't I? <laughs> They're like, well, you can't, you can't be like throwing him under the bus about his drug suspension. I'm like, he served a public drug suspension. Wow. You know, don't muzzle me. On YouTube, I answer to nobody. Mm. I don't even answer to the investors. You know, with Run Gum, I have investors. Sure. I have 
a group of, of employees and I do answer to people what's wrong with when it comes to YouTube, I answer to nobody and it feels really freeing to just be my authentic self, act the way I want to act, say the things I want to say, do the things I want to do. And I will, you know, I, I, I accept all responsibility for what I put out there when it comes to YouTube. That's awesome. Um, what's the Travis Scott mile? What were you eating? I couldn't <laughs> find all the details of what. So the, the Travis Scott meal was this big collaboration between McDonald's and Travis Scott, where he talked about his favorite meal, which I think is a, I'm gonna mess it up, but I want to say it's a quarter pounder with cheese and bacon, medium fries and a large Sprite okay. with barbecue sauce. So the Travis Scott mile is where you eat that. You have to choose one of the items per lap. Okay. It's like a beer mile where you drink a beer and run yep. a lap. Well, the Travis Scott mile, you eat one of the items and then run a lap. <laughs> what was your time? Oh, gosh, it was like 10 minutes. It's not, it's not <laughs> an easy event. Don't try that at home. Oh, I, I won't do that. Ugh, God. So you mentioned the um, you've done a bunch of really cool stuff. You had a um, you had a race on a track. You, you actually took a little bit of flack for it um, on social media for um, you had. I think it was like a bunch of your followers came out and you did a, a race. Um, yeah, here in Eugene. Yep, in Eugene. Um, called out for, I guess, not enough social distancing, um, on the race. And, um, you've got another one here coming up. I think I, I saw a recent video of you where you were wearing the mask on the beach, doing some other things. So yeah, what, um, where do you stand on all of that stuff? You know, first of all, the best analogy I heard, uh, maybe it was Fauci. I can't remember who it was, but someone said in 2020 with regards to the pandemic, we are literally building the airplane while flying it. And that's exactly what we're doing. You know, everybody out there wants to pretend that they're an amateur uh, epidemiologist, yeah. right? But nobody, you know, we, we didn't even know what we had on our hands until just a few months ago. Yeah. We're still learning about this virus. So everything that I'm reading tells me that the vast majority of transmission is happening in small groups indoors. Mm -hmm. That's just what, what I'm reading from the epidemiologist. And they're saying that outdoors, one of the reasons why we have outdoor dining one of the reasons that we have college football back, that we have so many outdoor events taking place, is that outdoors, the rate of transmission is phenomenally low. So if I'm watching football take place, if I'm watching outdoor rallies, riots in the streets, uh, celebrations in the streets, it seems to me that we've decided yeah. that outdoor communal gatherings are relatively safe. Yeah, and, and I thought so yeah, go ahead, please. No, I was just, I wanted to give you that opportunity because it was, you know, I, I read some of the comments and things and I thought it was, dangerously unfair because it wasn't as if you were just standing there going, well, screw the science and just sort of, you know, uh, you know, flouting all of the rules. You were saying, look, based on everything that I'm seeing and being told and, and witnessing, I am doing the, the thing that I think is, you know, so you were trying to be careful you, to, to the level that you, you know, that you believed that you were. So I don't, um, anyway, so I just wanted to give you the opportunity to kind of talk about that rather than. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I, 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 I really do take um, some offense at all of these amateur armchair epidemiologists out there. Like, should we wear masks? Yeah, it seems that the science is showing that wearing masks certainly reduces the rate of transmission, especially indoors. Outdoors, especially when you're, when you're working out in well-ventilated, well-lit places, I, I'm not sure that it's advisable. And, you know, Send me the data. Show me the science that it's advisable to be wearing a mask when working out, especially when you're exerting yourself that hard. So I think that as long as you're smart about it, you're again outdoors, warm, sunny, breezy day, limiting participation, trying to be smart. When you're together, you know, wearing a mask, using hand sanitizer, washing your hands, 
we are going to be dealing with this for some time. We just have to be smart about it. So um, let's fast forward here because this this kind of plays in. You you now have a company where you actually have manufacturing. You have a, a building facility and things like that with RunGum. How has um, how has the coronavirus affected the business? How has it affected the kind of inner workings day to day and all of that stuff? It certainly has decimated our industry uh, yeah. from an endurance racing standpoint. But how have you been able? How have you come through with RunGum? Well, we're in a unique category called CPG, consumer packaged goods. And CPG hasn't been hit that hard because people still are consuming things, right? It's one of the reasons why uh, Walmart, you know, essential businesses, Walmart, Target, grocery stores all had to remain open. And we happen to be a company that sells to Walmart and Target and grocery stores. So people could still find our product. We also were smart early on when we started this business that we created a DTC, direct consumer model. Mm -hmm. So people can go to rungum.com and they can buy our product and we ship it straight to their door. So even if they don't want to go to a grocery store, we can still send it to them. Um, however, everybody saw a hit in Q2. I don't care if you're tech. I don't care if you're CPG or events. Everyone got hit in Q2. Sure. And you know, it, it was scary. I mean, I, we, we had to let go of about six employees. Um, we had to kind of tighten our belt buckles and manage our cash and make sure that we could get through the worst of it. We were all just kind of sitting here looking at each other. Like we will need a V shape recovery. If we're going to get through this, yeah. we did get a little of the PPP money. You know, I, I was really impressed with our government. I almost never say that, but I was really <laughs> impressed with our bipartisan government that came together and got the, uh, the, the relief pack passed very quickly and we benefited from that and were able to prevent further layoffs by wow. having that cash on hand and then q3 came and it was like you know the storm kind of parted now i recognize that we're not through the worst of this like sure. it's it's still very real but from a cash flow business standpoint things have recovered significantly um, a big expansion in walmart helped us quite a bit and the strong shopping power of Q4, mm -hmm. just the fact that people spend so much in Q4 has made that meant that Q4 is going to be very strong for us as well. Well, it's good to hear on the PPP that saved a lot of businesses in our industry. I know that the personal side of, um, you know, was there enough, you know, the stimulus payments and all of that stuff I can't speak to. It didn't affect um, me or my family personally, but the PPP money, the number, that was a good one. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think that really helped a lot of businesses. Yeah. We're, we're a very small business industry in terms of timers and race directors and things like that. And a lot of yeah. timers, especially were able to keep employees on that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to keep. So good to know that you guys were. So let's, let's take another step back. What the hell is RunGum? So RunGum was born out of necessity. I, I created this product for myself. Like I, I had no, I had no business bringing it to market. Fortunately, my, my coach at the time had a business background, but I just, I was sponsored by en these energy drink companies, right? They're sending me all their product and exchange for social media exposure. And I fell in love with one in particular. I won't name the brand, but I fell in love with this energy drink because it made me feel so good before a workout or a race from an energy and cognitive standpoint. But okay. drinking this heavy, sugary, acidic liquid before working out was like the last thing my stomach wanted. Yeah. So I would I would literally make that decision each day. Do I want to feel this you know incredible surge of energy before my workout, and have the upset stomach, or do I want to feel kind of lethargic in my workout but have you know no upset stomach? And I had, like I said I'd studied biochemistry in college, and I knew that the stimulants I wanted, primarily caffeine, taurine, and B vitamins, 
could be absorbed sublingually, you know, bypass the GI tract through sublingual and buccal absorption through the lining of the gums. But I had to find a way to deliver it to my gum lining. So we looked at tinctures, we looked at lozenges, we looked at dissolving strips. But gum just made the most sense because it tastes good, it chews good, it's easy to manufacture, it's shelf stable. And the challenge at that point, once I decided on gum, was just finding a manufacturer that could make it to my specifications. And I went on a nationwide search and, and found one. And my coach and I wrote checks. This was self-funded. Oh. And, uh, and we bought a million pieces of Holy energy smokes. gum, packaged it in single-serving packages, called it Run Gum, and started selling it. That was 2014. Oh. Yeah, I think I picked up some, I think it must have been like a running USA. It was some running conference I was at and um, have been a customer ever since. I, I really like it. I, I don't know if it was like a Gatorade gum or years ago. Quench, there, yeah. Yeah, so, and it was like, it was great for literally four seconds. It was like a big yeah. burst of flavor and then it would lose everything. But run gum, yeah. yours, yours chews, tastes, lasts like gum. Yeah. That's like, the goal. Yeah. The goal is to make a good tasting, good chewing, long lasting piece of gum that also gives you a ton of energy. Or in the case of our newest product, Run Gum Immunity, gives you a boost to the immune system. We have Run Gum Immunity we launched just a couple of days ago. It has elderberry probiotics and B vitamins to boost your immune system. And you can expect in 2021 a, a host of different functionalities that we're going to bring out. So our, yeah. our goal is to bring you the most convenient, portable, affordable way to boost your day, whether you know, it's, it's energy or immunity in this case, or future functionalities. We want to just, just be there that, that little ace in, in your, up your sleeve yeah. when you need it most. Yeah, no, it's really good. I mean, if you're, um, it is just a nice little, um, I think we just too often we grab the energy drink or the cup of coffee or whatever. And, yeah. um, I, I like the form factor a lot where it's just, you know, you pop a piece of gum, you know, it's there. It's freshening it's your breath. And, and the best part, like you talk about energy drinks or coffee. And if you look at some of these drinks, they're packed with sugar, oh, yeah. packed with calories. We are a zero sugar, zero calorie, vegan friendly, gluten free. You know, we tick all the boxes. We are just the energy you want without all the other junk. Yeah. How has it been starting that business? I mean, you, you know, this has been a tough year, but um, I love hearing kind of origin stories on on um on that so you went in yeah. you threw your own cash in you buy a million pieces of gum uh, ups and downs was it a rocket ship from day one no it definitely wasn't a rocket ship i you know it's as the eternal optimistic that i, I am a, as an entrepreneur i'm like oh this is awesome we're gonna be billionaires within a couple of years sure. you know that didn't happen but <laughs> through the roller coaster an entrepreneurial business is truly a roller coaster there's ups and downs there were days where I like, I remember when we first landed Target. It was our first really big nationwide account, and I'm like screaming, I'm like, "Oh my God, we're all gonna be millionaires!" Wow. You know. And then there were days like uh, back in March where I just looked at my business partner, and I we were both crying, and I gave him a hug, and I'm like, "It's been a good run. Like we we learned a lot, wow. and it's been a good ride, but this company is going bankrupt, and mm -hmm. we just have to be okay with that." You know. So that's the if you can't handle those two emotions, and more importantly. If there's not something inside you that loves both sides of that coin, and I mean it, looking back on Mar that moment in March, it was one of the scariest, hardest moments of my life. Right. But I look back on it, and I have nothing but appreciation for that moment. Brought me and my business partner closer, reminded me of how resilient we are as a company, how resilient I am as a person. If you, if you don't embrace both sides of that coin, of the, the highs and lows, then maybe entrepreneurial business isn't for you. But I love it. I absolutely love the roller coaster, and I, I, I'm – 
especially now as we're more farther removed, we're six years into this business, I can see the macroscopic trend, the bigger trend of this thing continuing to grow, continuing to reach more people, to continuing to help more people. And I know that though it's going to be lumpy along that trend line, the trend is continued growth. So when you're, so it's back in March and you're, I mean, you guys have basically, I guess, accepted defeat to a certain extent and thinking, you know, the run is over. How do you overcome? Was it the PPP money? Was it digging in deeper? Well, first of all, I think my business partner and I. And this is, this is Sam LaPrey. Sam LaPrey. Yeah. He was my coach for many, many years. For better, for worse, we make decisions quickly, like real fast. And then we just make them the right decisions. You know, I think that that's something I, I t- teach entrepreneurs qu- quite frequently. There is no right or wrong decision, but in this indecision, you know, being indecisive, that is going to kill you. So make a decision and then make it the right one. But we saw the writing on the wall. Like we knew what was coming down the pipeline real quick. And so we, we had to let go. I think in one day we let go of four people. It was really a horrible day for us. Yeah. But we knew that we were going to run out of cash and, in order to save the other half of the team, we had to, you know, preserve cash. Yeah. Um, and that got us through, you know, a good couple of weeks, almost a month before the, the stimulus was passed. Then when PPP was passed, the PPP money started getting doled out. We applied for it. And that is what allowed us to maintain our, our st- salary and maintain our staff so we didn't have to let go of anyone else. I think that gave us, I want to say, three payroll periods or 90 days. And by the end of that 90 days, cash flow had almost resumed. So that's how we got through it from a cash flow standpoint. Um, from an emotional standpoint, it was day by day. Yeah. I mean, every day we just show up and be like, are we still in business? Yes, that's a win. Okay, see you tomorrow. Wow. And just do the best that we could, fulfilling the obligations that we had with Walmart and Target. And you know, fortunately, shopping at Walmart and Target, historically in a recession and certainly during the pandemic, it was boosted considerably. Yeah. And then piggyback the fact that people were finally, not finally, but were really starting to put a focus on their own fitness yep. and viewing the quarantine as a time to invest in themselves. And you saw stuff flying off the shelves and sporting goods at Target and Walmart where were merchandise. So yeah. that, was a, you know, that was a blessing for us. Just again, the fact that we had created that DTC model so we could ship to people directly and not have to you know, go through the door. It worked out for us. It didn't work out for everybody. You right. know, I, I know, business, I know rest, poor restaurant owners. Oh mm. my gosh, they've been hit so hard. Yeah. Or event production. We have a lot of event production friends. Um, Ragnar Relay, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Eugene, um, uh, Tracktown USA. I mean, so many of these event production. I don't even know. My heart goes out to them. It's yeah. just so sad. It's so frustrating. And yeah, uh, yeah I mean, we, we we're just we're 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 doing okay. We're just trying to do the best we can with with the, the curveballs we're being thrown, like everybody else. Yeah, it's great. We um, I think we've mentioned it on on one or two of the episodes earlier, but we ran some data for Wall Street Journal um, two weeks ago now, I think. And we so the, the tough part was coming through the the first week of March. We were actually up three percent. The industry as a whole wow. racing first yeah. time since twenty twelve, I think. So first growth year, everything was going mm-hmm. really well. And we are now at 94 and a half percent down from this oh time my last gosh. year. Yep. That is just, I mean, catastrophic. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you shrink 10%, that's a rough year. Yep. 
you shrink 94.5%. I mean, on, I mean, I, and it, I, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of COVID and, and how we've handled it, but at what point, you know, have we just decimated our economy and hurt right. people so much? I, I don't know. It's, it's for other people to figure out, but I do, I do think we look at the, at the number of cases and the death rate and we, we fixate on that. But what about the kids at home that, you know, are missing out on their education? What about yeah. the business owners that have gone bankrupt? What about, and, and I just, I'm surrounded by it on both sides. Like I, right. I'm horrified by the death, but I'm horrified by the bankruptcies as well. Yeah. And the thing that, you know, the, the, the silver lining of all of this is I felt in, in a way with the big financial crisis where we just threw a bunch of cash at the problem, but then it didn't really seem to change anything. It didn't, I don't think we, any of us walked around after that and felt like, wow, now our, our yeah. banking and financial institutions we are really, them. you know, yeah, for sure. and whereas this time it feels like, you know, for, again, for like the first time I see kids playing outside with balls and sticks and, you know, fricking rocks and just running through yeah. the ravine behind my house. And like, it feels like there is a I'm, certain, I'm really glad you're seeing that. But did you see a study recently that uh, childhood obesity rates have exploded through all this? You're kidding. I am not joking Ugh. that, that, that childhood obesity rates are, are increasing dramatically mm. through all this because of the lockdowns, the lack yeah. of recess, parents who are afraid to let them out like yeah. there are going to be massive massive repercussions to what we have done to our children and our economy well and you're this. you're the biochemist i'm sure that you know the the correlation with um was it cortisol and stress and weight yeah. gain oh, it's yeah. got to be off the charts right now with people with yeah. you know between the election rankings up you know people are consuming more alcohol yeah. people yeah. are i think that that uh psychiatrists and sociologists will be studying this for decades yeah for sure what we did because the virus that's that's natural i mean viruses happen lockdowns are man-made and the world health organization recently came out and said that in a lot of scenarios lockdowns cannot be the answer mm -hmm. it, it is too devastating on our society on our psyche on our economies lockdowns cannot be the answer yeah yeah, it's a great. I mean, I, I agree. You and I obviously are of the same mindset in terms of it's the exact opposite is the way through in terms of being more active, more healthy, more fit, being yeah. around people, being happier, you know, whether it's, you know, gatherings, church, races, all of those types of things. There's There's got to be some level of offset in risk, you know, where it's like these two bifurcate between the risk of isolation yeah. and the risk of non-isolation, I guess. And that's really the fine balance that, that you know, the, the task force and the epidemiologists and the economists are trying to find is, well, where, where do we find that sweet spot where we keep enough economic activity that we don't go into a Great Depression, but we don't lose so many people as we would if we just let this thing run wild? And everybody has their opinion on it. I have mine, but ultimately I think we just – continue to try to build the airplane while we're flying it. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Indeed. Well said. So you've got the um, immunity new formula coming out there. Have you guys thought about getting it? I mean, the I love the name Run, Run Gum. The branding is really cool. Do you worry that it's too specific to gum? Do you guys think about going into other categories and things? I think we love gum as a, as a delivery vehicle, right? Okay. It's faster. It's easier. It's more convenient. It tastes good. It freshens your breath. There's so right. many reasons we love gum. Rather than going into different forms, I think we continue to push this, this idea of being the leader in functional chewing gum, yeah. right? So there are so many directions we can go with this. Calm, um, 
you know, we, we've discussed recovery. We've, we've actually finished R&D on run gum recovery with, with 10 milligrams of CBD. I mean, mm. there's a dozen different directions we can go with this. It's really a question of what, honestly, sometimes it's a question of what I get most excited yeah. about, right? Like I wanted immunity product for myself, exactly the way run gum energy was born out of a desire for a product that I wanted myself. Run gum immunity, I said, uh, I want my immune system cranked to 11 call the R&D department, make me the best immune immunity products you can yeah. make. And, you know, another thing I'm really focusing on, on now that I get older is recovery. So I think you could see run gum recovery in the near future. I know that people are dealing with anxiety and frustrations and just everything that goes with what we're dealing with right now. You could see run gum calm in the near, very near future. So there are, there are a lot of directions that we can go with with what we consider to be a superior delivery vehicle. It's cool because your, your business is so much more than the gum. It's like just the, um, you guys are really open about your culture and your, your team and all that stuff on the website. Um, I watched the video I've, I've determined this is how I'm just now starting every single presentation that I give. Yeah. Um, not everyone's an Olympian, but Nick Simmons <laughs> is. That's perfect. I'm just going to start every yeah. presentation. Not everyone's an Olympian, but Nick Simmons is. Has nothing to do with me. I just <laughs> like it's so. We made that as as an entrepreneur. I appreciate this. We made that about three years ago, oh. which it looks like it's like a twenty five thousand dollar video. We made it for five grand, <laughs> and it's and that that has probably sold more run gum than anything else we've done. So. You know, again, yeah. the power of YouTube, the power of digital marketing. Yeah, I was I was laughing out loud. I just I don't know why it struck me as so funny, but not everyone's an Olympian, but Nick Simmons is. As a as a YouTube video, it gets your attention right sure. away. And and all my YouTubers out there know you you have about five seconds to get somebody's attention or they'll click off. Yeah, and for anybody listening to this right now, I didn't even realize it until after I had asked you to come on. Um and uh, I, man, I was like, I think I watched like an hour and a half of your stuff this morning. The, the dressed up like a turtle, dressed up like a chicken, the hangs. Have you gotten to the hundred second hang yet? I can't, I can't do it, but everybody else seems to be able to <laughs> do it. Which is funny because you are built, you know, like you're, you know, you're a muscular. Yeah. Guy. You know, the, you know, the strongest people in that arena are like 14 year old kids. Yeah, I bet. It's all about strength to weight ratio. And now I'm a, I'm the bison just hanging there struggling. <laughs> but yeah, you know, if you haven't checked out my YouTube channel, I call it fun with fitness and every week we drop a new video. A lot of it's challenging people, you know, to do, to do different, different uh, physical challenges or I'll put myself through physical challenges. Um, but it is designed to be entertaining first and foremost with some motivation, inspiration and education kind of like baked in yeah. there. I don't know how I wasn't a, like a already a subscriber and stuff. And then I went back through and I'm like, Oh shoot. I remember that video. I remember that video. Um, yeah. and it's great. I mean, I'm telling everybody right now, like, go check it out. It is great content, super well produced. I mean, you got some, yeah, I wish I could take credit for that, but we hired a videographer about, oh, this time last year, a little, little earlier. And his name's Ryan. He's fresh out of university of Oregon. He, he is the, the brains behind it. If I'm the face and I'm, I'm the one, you know, running around in the chicken costume, yeah. he's the one that makes it look so professional. Uh, it's a one man show. He manages eight to 10 cameras per shoot. Wow. And then somehow he takes all of that footage, hours and hours of footage, and distills it down into the best 10-minute video we can make. Well, I'll tell you, he was a great hire. That was a that was definitely yeah, a really smart was. move. 
Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm glad we we were starting to end on a on a higher note from the COVID talk. So it's time yeah. it's time now for the ten question dash. So this is kind of a goofy thing we like to do. Uh, I'm going to ask you ten questions. Shout out the first answer that comes to mind. Uh, there's no take backs, no crossing fingers, no fibbing. So you just gotta <laughs> you gotta answer honestly. There's no okay. there's no wrong answers, but there's some writer answers here. So it's all it's oh, all pretty okay. painless. Uh-oh. All right. Uh, so next race, two wheels, two feet. Do I have to choose? Yeah. Oh, two wheels for sure. Two wheels. Okay, good. Oh yeah, it hurts too much to run. Okay, run a race. Are you? Uh, I do you have a triathlon in your belt? I've done a triathlon. Okay. I'd love to be an Ironman finisher one okay. day. Okay, well, very good. All right, very good. Uh, winter, spring, summer, or fall? What's your favorite? Fall for sure. God, everybody says fall. I'm a summer guy. Um, okay, worst running or riding experience? Ooh, is it that? Gosh, is it that so bittersweet? So many. <laughs> 2012 Olympic final. There you go, man. You'll be the only one with that answer. That's a good one. Um, what's your favorite race? Do you have a go-to race you love to go back to every year? Oh, like to participate yeah. in or of my career? Uh, either way. Um, either way. Well, my favorite race of my career is the 2008 Olympic trials where I first became an Olympian. Okay. But the, the race I love to participate in most, um, gosh, there's some good ones around Eugene. I, I Anything in Eugene. I just love being out in this community. People are so friendly and it's just fun to be in the community. Love it. Home stretch song or band on your playlist? I don't listen to music listen when to I music. run. Okay, very good. Nope. Well, then the next question was, what's your most embarrassing band or artist on your playlist? So well, I guess that's... Taylor Swift. Everybody says Taylor <laughs> Favorite training partner, human or animal? My dog, Milo. Damn, nice. Yeah. Okay, living or dead, who would you most like to share a long run with or a ride? Mm, wow. Not political because I am apolitical, but Barack Obama, okay. I would just love to pick his brain. Okay. Pre-race ritual or superstition? Chew, run, gum. <laughs> Very good. All right. Final question. Yeah. Nick Simmons, what is the secret? Perseverance. Perseverance. Love it. And, and the secret to everything is just perseverance. That is awesome. Very good. Any uh, any parting words for our listeners? No, man, this is awesome. This I love the long form podcast because I feel like we really dug into a lot there. Um, you know, I it's it's funny because I don't I don't know your audience, but I, I do know they're probably you know into fitness. And I think that if I leave you with one parting bit of wisdom, it's that through all aspects of my life, when I was a teenager and things were tough, or in my twenties and things were tough, or now in my thirties, there has been one underlying theme. I call it the glue that holds my life together. It is my daily workout. It doesn't have to be a marathon. It doesn't even have to be a runner. But literally, a workout for me could be something as simple as a 30-minute walk. But seven days a week, 365 days a year, I get my daily dose of glue that will hold everything together. It makes me a better husband. It makes me a better brother, a better, better son, a better businessman. If I don't get my daily dose of exercise in, I am not as as good of a person in so many areas of my life. So I'm probably preaching to the choir, but I cannot stress what 30 minutes of exercise a day will do for your spirit, your health, your energy levels. It's just, it is the glue that can, that has held my life together. And I really believe can, it can benefit everybody. Well, excellent. Thank you for sharing the wisdom with the, uh, with the listeners. I think that's great advice. Absolutely. Preaching to the choir, but yeah, absolutely. hundred yeah, percent. Right. I'm sure preaching yeah. to the choir of all the listeners too. So, um, 
I can't thank you enough, man, for coming on. This has been a, a great, great time, and I'd love to sit down and chat with you in person one day. Uh, once the once the fall we clears, to do that yeah. Again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, hey, we got a bunch of big events in Eugene. I think they're still going to take place. We got the Olympic trials that didn't take place in 2020. They've been moved to 2021. Mm-hmm. Maybe a lot of your listeners are going to be out here. Make sure you look me up on Instagram at Nick Simmons. Say hi. I'm going to be hosting um, some events. They will be, you know, based on the <laughs> the CDC guidance that we're getting at the time. I'm sure, it's going to change. Perfect. But we'll do a lot of fun videos and some some fun uh, fun times here at the trials, and and I think it's June twenty twenty one. Well, definitely check out Nick on Instagram and YouTube. There's a lot of really cool kick ass content. So, and that is the show. So, hope you enjoyed it. More people racing more often, having more fun in the process is our mission. Thanks again to Nick Simmons. Go buy some run gum right now. Um, And be sure to subscribe uh, to the podcast. We want to hear from you. So leave comments on our socials. We are at Athlinks Across the Board. Or shoot us an email to podcast at athlinks.com. Share it with friends far and wide. Give us a review if you dig it. And until next time, happy racing, everybody. Nice one. Bam.